Well, have you got your uh, seatbelt sign this morning? <laughs> We've been taking some deep dives into uh, ancient uh, Hebrew culture and history and language to, to try to decipher what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, today is going to be no exception. But uh, remember, uh, some of you have said, yeah, it's just so many things to think about. Well, don't get overwhelmed by the things. Try to remember those... Um, those pointillism sort of artworky things that they used to sell, and you looked at it and you just saw a bunch of colors, but if you kind of let your eyes go out of focus, then there were like 3D dinosaurs or something in there. I forget, Magic Eye, I think they called them. It's kind of like that. When you're listening to all this stuff, don't try to focus on all the details. Just try to hear how it all glues together, because it really does glue together. Don't worry about each individual note unless you are Doug. He will be taking each note on his iPad in color triplicate things. Yeah, so that's the engineer in him. But uh, yeah, everything is going to point back to the Father's love. Everything is going to point back to common sense. And that is the key. Because as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been fighting two things. We've been fighting legalism and we've been fighting literalism. And both of those are really important for us to get around and to, to take that whole paradigm and turn it backwards, back to front. Because if we look at the Sermon on the Mount through a, a literal lens and through a legal lens, we will never understand what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it's going to sound absolutely absurd. It's not going to make any common sense, just like the passage that we're going to be talking about today. And the reason for this is, is that we've been talking about for months now that Jesus is a poet. He's not a literalist. He doesn't write prose. In fact, we don't know if he wrote anything at all. All we have is oral tradition that was later transcribed. But he speaks and he thinks like a poet, which is the only way that you can talk about spiritual issues. They can't be described directly. They can't be defined. You can't put edges around them because by definition, they stand outside of everything that we can know. But you can point to them. You can point to them with metaphor. You can point to them with figures of speech. You can evoke experiences. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that Jesus says is metaphorical. No, of course not. But the context will tell us how to look. The context will tell us how to interpret. And that's what we always have to look at. We have to look at the context. To understand Jesus' sayings, we can't be literal out of context. We want to be literal, but it has to be within the context or everything gets shifted. You know, we have to be able to find that context, which is what we're doing. Jesus in these six antitheses, and if you're joining for the first time right now, in the middle of chapter five, which is the first of three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to be redefining law. Law was a central aspect of Jewish life, but they were looking at it legally. They were looking at it literally. Even then is what it had come to. And he's trying to get them to completely shift their worldview to look at it in a different way. And so he takes six main issues of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce and remarriage, oaths, which is oath-taking and vow-taking, which we're going to be talking about today, retribution, and then finally, your neighbor versus your enemy, loving the enemy. He's going to take these six issues and he's going to be flipping them over. He uses a formula to do that, an antithetical formula. He says, you have heard it was said of old... And he states the, the law that they were familiar with or the oral tradition that they were familiar with. 
And then he says, but I'm going to tell you. And then he takes that macro rule and he reformats it into a micro directive that points back to a heart condition, points back to intent, points back to something personal. Not just legal, but now about right and wrong in this particular situation. How can I do the greatest good for the greatest number of people by the next word out of my mouth, the next action that I take? How can I lead people better than I found them? This is what is going on. So now in terms of taking oaths or swearing oaths, he's going to do the same sort of thing. And I wanted to start by reading a question that comes from a relatively new Christian. He... he uh, defines himself as a relatively new Christian convert, two years at this point, attending an evangelical church. And the question that he has is, why is OMG considered blasphemy? (laughs) Now, y'all know what OMG is? All right. Now, the reason that, I mean, the fact that he's asking this question means that he's already heard it from his church. You know, he's a new convert. He comes in, and he's probably OMGing all over the place because we all sort of do that in our culture, and he's getting slapped down for it, right? So why is OMG considered blasphemy? As a relatively new Christian convert attending an evangelical church, this confuses me. As the Psalms seem to use the term repeatedly and extensively, Psalm 59.1, deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. O my God, defend me from them that rise up against me. Psalm 22.2, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season I am not silent. Psalm 25.2, O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed, let not mine enemies triumph over me. I would be inclined to believe that the OMG likely started as a result of passages such as these. I don't understand why it would be the case that if a person were to quote Psalm 22.2 without listeners being aware of the direct quoting, the sentiment from which the OMG is expressing would likely be determined by modern-day listeners to be blasphemous. The closest I can come to understanding the accusation of blasphemy is not in regards to the phrase itself, But maybe there is something that can rightly be said that most people who say it may not have God on their minds. But by that standard, does a common turn of phrase such as, thank God, become blasphemous when the person saying it isn't actually intending the sentiment they're expressing, but are simply using the Lord's name flippantly in vain? Where is the line drawn between blasphemy and non-blasphemy? All right. See, here's the thing. Once you take the law and you separate it from its purpose, then it just becomes an exercise in loopholes, right? I mean, this is what happens. Now we're, when you're just following law and we're no longer concerned about the purpose of that law, what the law was trying to affect in a person's life. Now it's just about endless questions. What can I do? What can't I do? What keeps me in line? What is outside the line? What am I going to get rewarded for? What am I going to get punished for? Now, this was a a question that was stated online, and there was a bunch of replies, of course. And the replies, you know, went kind of along the lines of you would expect. One of them said, well, in these Psalms, it's a direct address to God. Oh, my God, you're talking directly to God. That's okay. But if you're not, then it's blasphemy, you see. Another one, talk about fine-tuning. He said, God isn't really God's name, is it? I mean, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, but it's not God. And oh my God is usually put in lowercase, so it's not about God, so how can it be blasphemy? Okay, he's, he's splitting some hairs there. 
Yeah. And another one was the phrase itself is not blasphemous. It's the intent that makes it blasphemous. Okay, that's pretty good. But here's the thing. Traditionally, people from ancient times, probably from all times and forward till today, when we come across something, when we see something that's really intense, really consequential, maybe like a car crash. Have you ever witnessed a car crash? You know, what is the first thing you do after, <laughs> after that sharp intake of breath, right? Oh, my God. Isn't it just natural that something that is that consequential, that intense, is going to take us to the ultimate authority that we can possibly invoke? It's just what we do. And when it's really personal, what do we say? Oh, my dear God. Because now that's a prayer in and of itself. This is what we traditionally do. The Jews had special prayers to say at the time that they would see something intense or consequential like this, you know, a misfortune that would take place. And what do the Catholics do? Well, they instinctively cross themselves, right? It's the same sort of thing. This is absolutely what we do. We will go right there. Oh my God, in this case, it's a spontaneous and even subconscious prayer of deep sympathy, of compassion, and actually it can be of fear too. It could be fear for our own safety. But once, of course, it becomes overused and used all the time, like so many phrases that have completely lost their meaning, this phrase also loses its meaning and becomes pretty much an expression that doesn't really say anything as it was originally tended. Got another little article here. This was posed to uh, Jew Jewish kids, school kids in their school, you know, teenage kids. Does texting OMG amount to blasphemy? Now, these are Jews, not Christians, right? Take a look at this. As texting and instant messaging became a way of life, a shorthand lexicon emerged to save time and stress on fingers. Acronyms like LOL and TTYL replaced laughing out loud and talk to you later. The letters OMG replaced oh my God. Or did it? There's a debate on what the G in OMG really means. Does it stand for gosh or God? If it stands for God, is using it a sin? And this is what was posed to these kids. John Donovan spoke to a group of high school students from the Washington Hebrew Congregation Youth Group in Bethesda, Maryland, about OMG and how it relates to the Third Commandment, which says, according to the King James Version of the Bible, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 27. There are various interpretations of the commandment, but it is commonly defined as using the Lord's name casually or irreverently. Saying Jesus Christ in any way other than praise is one example. OMG has a number of meanings ranging from excitement to disbelief. For a vast number of American teens, it has replaced the exclamation mark. Right? OMG instead of an exclamation mark. You don't think that you're saying, oh my God, said Rachel Edelman, 15. You're just thinking, oh, it's like a surprise. OMG, it's nothing to be thought about. Lexi Levin, 18, describes herself as an avid OMG user in text. She thinks using OMG is a long way from oh my God. To her, it's akin to golly, gee, and gosh. That's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if that's a fair way to think about it, 
but it's how I make myself feel better. <laughs> I like that. Honest. Julian Schneider, 14 agrees. If you say something like, oh my God, then you're using his name in vain. But if you're saying something like, OMG, it's not really using the Lord's name in vain because you're not saying, oh my God. It's more like, wow, really? <laughs> For hundreds of years, people have found ways to avoid using the Lord's name in vain. Words like gosh and golly, both dating back to the 1700s, served as euphemisms for God. It's a Jewish tradition to write G underscore D to show respect for God in print, right? Exclamations like, oh my God, and Jesus Christ were rarely used in polite conversation and drew rebuke when they were. But that has changed in recent decades, and art is imitating life. The Parents Television Council reports that in 2007, the most recent year for which they have data, 95.9% of uses of the word God on primetime network television were in vain. And that was 2007. So imagine what it's like now. I mean, our, our society has coarsened to such a degree that these words are ubiquitous. We hear them all the time. And we don't even flinch at them hardly anymore. Imagine the kind of, of language that's on television now in 2007, even 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Imagine it as you were growing up. I mean, it just didn't happen. So is OMG blasphemy? More important, is this what Jesus is talking about when he tells us not to swear? So let's find out. Let's read Matthew 5, starting at verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told. Here's the beginning of his formula, right? You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Anytime you see all caps in the New Testament, it's a quotation from the Old Testament. So here he's quoting, quoting Leviticus. We're going to read that in just a second. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair, white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Okay, now a lot of that's probably not going to make sense to you yet, because it's down in the weeds of their own culture. But hear what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about swearing an oath, swearing a vow. Now, is that the same as swearing as we understand it also, as just saying offensive language or profanity? Now, there has been a general Christian consensus that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about because the church has been talking against profanity and slapping us down for using it you know, for, for ages. How many times have you been slapped down for using a bad word, right? It's part of the Christian moral code. And the legal code, too. Did you know that there was a Dutch town that banned blasphemy? Uh, the name of the Lord may no longer be taken in vain in the Dutch village of Staffhorst. Staffhorst, in the so-called Dutch Bible Belt of eastern towns where religion holds sway, approved a ban on swearing by a 13-4 to 4 council vote. But the caveat that swearing is not banned when it is an expression of the constitutional freedom of speech may make it hard and difficult to punish offenders. A ban on swearing can be seen as a signal 
the council proposal said. Adding a change in moral values was needed to address the underlying problem. Okay, so it's a symbol. It's something they wanted on the books and heightened awareness about the use of um, profanity. Past swearing bans in Bible Belt villages were declared in violation of the right to free expression in 1986. One other town has such a ban in the southwestern province of Zealand. The Dutch Association Against Swearing, there's a Dutch Association Against Swearing, how about that, which runs national billboard campaigns to admonish the badmouthed Dutch, says the Bible outlaws swearing. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Back to Exodus 27, which is the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? So, the third commandment says no swearing. Does it? Let's look again. Let's take a look at Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that actually mean? Taking God's name, his Shem. Remember we talked about his name meant much more to the Jews than just what he was called. The Shem means the essence. It means the character. It can mean the reputation of somebody. It can be the essence of someone. It was the outer countenance that reflected the inner essence. All of this is Shem. So it goes much deeper than just a name. But taking God's name, his Shem, in vain, means to make it worthless, to make it of no account, to take this holy name, everything that they held in absolute authority, and make it of no account, make it worthless. But what's the context that they're talking about here? How is it being made worthless? Let's take a look at the ninth commandment at Exodus 20:16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All right, we know this one really well. We, we've gone over this before. The ninth commandment has also been seen as broadly prohibiting any kind of lie. And yet we've talked about in here, and we've gone over this all the time, is lying always wrong? And we have all agreed by consensus, no, it's not always wrong. It's always unlawful, but it's not wrong. But is it even unlawful here? The context here is legal perjury, not personal conversation. Because in court... You know, they didn't have courts the way we have in courts. They just had small tribunals and sometimes a single judge. And nobody could be convicted by the testimony of just one witness. That wouldn't be right. You could have one person who just has it in for you, can haul you up before the judge, and by his testimony, you're going to be hauled out and stoned. You needed two to three witnesses to be able to convict somebody in these tribunals. The witness here is the key. You can't bear false witness against your neighbor. So this context here is this legal perjury, this idea. And the third commandment is the same. It should be rendered swearing falsely by God's name. Thou shalt not swear falsely using God's name or by God's name. Because the third commandment is about legal contracts. It's about treaties that were ratified in God's name, the highest authority that could be invoked would ratify and bind contracts together. If you think about it, society can't survive broken contracts and can't survive perjury. If the court system falls apart, if you can't bind in a contract and, and trust that the other person is going to hold up their end, how do you just go about life? 
How do you buy and sell? How do you trade? How do you do anything in life? These things were absolutely essential to the life of the community. Now, how do we know that this is right? How do we know this interpretation is right? Because where these commandments, and especially the one that we're talking about right now, swearing oaths, is restated in other parts of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it's much more clear. Take a look at Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 23.23. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips. Careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Whatever you say, you better do, right? Now, some would argue, and some, especially Christians, uh, apologists have argued that it actually goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the legal to personal conversation as well, and swearing as we typically understand swearing. And one of the verses that they would cite is Leviticus 24.16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, all the congregation shall certainly stone him. Now, in some of the translations that they use to back this idea up, they will say they will use the word misuses. The one who misuses the name of the Lord. Or even more to the point, the one who utters the Lord's name in a curse will surely be stoned. But that's not what the original language says. What the original language says is that to blaspheme or to curse or to speak against the Lord's name directly is punishable by death. In other words, if you directly demean God in public, watch out. Start running because it's going to happen. But not all these other permutations that we're talking about. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that profanity used either with or without the Lord's name involved is a good thing. We just talked about the coarsening of our society and what it's done to us, you know, the desensitization that has gone on now for, for decades. But this is not what this focus is here. The focus here is still on legal proceedings, not profanity, not curses, not imprecations in anger or idle conversation. To take the Lord's name in vain is to use it to bind a contract or a treaty and then break the contract or the treaty to make it worthless. This is what it means. If you use God's name to put something together, then make it happen. Don't go back on your word. The Jews themselves, though, even by Jesus' time, had broadened the focus, and long before Jesus' time, had broadened the focus to exclude the idle use of God's name. They actually forbade using God's name at all, ever, any use. And it's so amazing that it was forbidden to be spoken for so long that they forgot how to pronounce it. Do you know today that Jews don't know how to pronounce the tetragrammaton, the, the yod heh vav heh, or what looks like Y-W-H-W in our transliteration? We can say it's Yahweh, we can say it's Yehoah, but we don't know. They don't know. Since Hebrew is only written in consonants, and there's no vowels, there was no way to know because it hadn't been spoken for so long. It's amazing when you think about that. They broadened it just the way we have done. Because once 
a name or a word is forbidden to be said, what happens? We start introducing the euphemisms, right? And for the Jews, they instead of God's name, you know, whatever it was, Yahweh, Yehovah, they would use Adonai, which means Lord. They would use Hashem, which means the name. They would use Shemaiah, which means heaven. All these were euphemisms, and they understood they're using that in place of God's name. It's reverence for God's name is what the purpose of the law is all about. To be reverent of God's name, to use it for its intended purpose. But as soon as that is lost in a superstitious approach, then the rabbis started creating loopholes for what they wanted to do anyway. They started creating loopholes for the oath-taking and how they could get around that. They started to say that an oath only counted if you actually used God's name in the contract. You could substitute other names, though, like you could swear by the temple, you could swear by heaven, earth, you could swear by your own head. And kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back, it would lessen the severity of the oath that you were making or nullify it altogether. See what they were, what they were playing at here? Okay, if you swear by God's name, well, you're bound. But if you swear by the temple, well, not so much, you know. If you swear by the, the horns of the altar, you know, you're bound to this level. But if you only swear by the gold on the horns of the altar, well, then not so much. This is what they were doing. Now Jesus' words are starting to make more sense. Remember what he said, you know. But I say to you, make no, no, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, by Jerusalem, don't make it by your head because you can't make one hair white or black. He is speaking against this oral tradition, these loopholes that the rabbis were putting in place. And we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, it's already been pointed out that gosh and golly have been around for 300 years since the 1700s, right? Gosh, gosh darn, golly, galdern, everything to say so we don't say God or GD, right? And then how about criminy? <laughs> crikeys, by crikeys. You, know, you can just understand, people start the word and then they just finish it. My personal favorite, for crying out loud. I love that one. But then there's G and G's and G whiz and jeepers. So everything that would start with Jesus or Christ or God, we've got all these euphemisms and we think, well, if we say that, we're okay. But if we said the other thing, whoa, look out then. But what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us don't swear at all. The purpose of the law is to keep our promises. It's that simple. The purpose of the law is to keep us, keep our promises, to bind us to our word. Not merely to never invoke God's name. That's just a, a sidelight. It's about keeping our promises. But once a law becomes more important than the purpose that that law was written to maintain, then the loopholes in the gaming begins. Jesus is telling us that yes and no are perfectly sufficient answers. It's all we need if we are people of our word. And you can put this one on your fridge. For an honest person, no oath is necessary. For a dishonest person, no oath is enough. So what's the purpose of an oath? Either you're honest or you're dishonest. You're decent or you're indecent. And of course, we don't know the difference. And so in our fear, in our need for security, we have the law. 
to try to make us more secure, to put some teeth and traction behind what we say if we can't be trusted. But does Jesus really mean that we're never supposed to swear an oath at all, ever? Well, if you ask the Quakers, if you ask the Mennonites, the answer is a resounding yes. They've been persecuted for hundreds of years because they refuse to swear an oath in court. They refuse to swear an oath to military service. They will not swear an oath because they're taking this absolutely literally in the way that they understand it. But take a look at Matthew 26. Actually, I skipped a line. I skipped a section, didn't I? I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> it would be going back. Just, just more about the, all the games that the, uh, the uh, Pharisees were playing. Oh, I'll read it anyway. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple that is nothing, but who swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sacrificed the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Man, you've got to love the way that Jesus formulates an idea. God is so succinct, so on point, and just hits everything. Understand the reaction that he would have gotten for saying this. These precepts, this oral tradition, was the source of the Pharisees' power. It's what they had over the people. And Jesus is just laying an axe right to the root of it all. But in terms of, are we supposed to not ever take an oath? Jesus actually takes his own oath at Matthew 26, starting at verse 63. This is his trial right before the crucifixion when he's hauled away from the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night. But Jesus kept silent through all their questioning. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you shall tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus just swore by the living God to these things. And the reaction was immediate and it was violent. The high priest has a fit. He tears his garments and says, What have we need of more evidence? We have heard the blasphemy from his own mouth. There it is. Jesus swearing. Now Paul also swore oaths. He swore oaths in Second Corinthians, in Romans, and in Galatians. And he swears by saying, With God is my witness. And then he makes his oath. Did you know that God swore himself? In Hebrews 16, both verse 13 and 17. And how did he swear? He swore by himself, as was related by the author of Hebrews, that the promises that he made to Abraham would be fulfilled. There was no higher authority than himself, so he swore by himself. Oaths are prescribed for the people of Israel in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. See, Jesus is making a point here. And he's using outrageous language to do it. He's representing the meaning and purpose of the law. He's saying, don't make any oath at all. He knows that's not possible in society. He knows that oaths need to be taken. 
But he's using the hyperbole. He's using this language to try to break through, to get us to understand that there is a promise being made. Honor the promise from the inside out, and the oath becomes inconsequential. He's deconstructing the oral tradition of the Pharisees. He's trying to reverse this long two to three hundred year slide in his culture into legalism, into the nullification of the purpose of the law itself. It's not forbidden to swear an oath, of course not. But it is forbidden to swear a vain oath, one that you don't intend to carry out or to keep. Common sense, right? Absolute common sense. To live in kingdom means that we value others. It means that we care about our relationships. But it also means that we have a strong enough sense of our own identity, a strong enough sense of our own acceptance by God, in order to be non-codependent enough to actually just say no when we mean no, and yes when we mean yes. How many of you, how many times (laughs) have you said yes out of the fear of what the other person was going to say or think of you or how they were going to accept you when you really knew that you weren't going to follow through. Are you going to come to this party? Are you going to read this article? Are you going to pray for me? Are you All the things. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're making a promise and we think, okay, it's just a white promise, right? It's not a big deal. But why are we doing that? Why don't we just say no? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of non-acceptance. We're afraid that that person isn't going to like us anymore. But if we're not going to do it, when are we going to have the strength, the interior strength to just say what we mean and mean what we say? This is where Jesus is trying to get us. You know, in the final analysis, it's pretty scary to follow Jesus. It's not the easy road. He's relentless in deconstructing and exposing our security blankets Whatever it is that we have clung to, whatever it is that we wrap ourselves in because of our fear, whatever it is that limits us, he will be relentlessly poking at it, exposing it to your own awareness so that you can start to do something about it. Now, we build legal walls to hide behind in order to feel safe, secure, in order to feel justified. And Jesus consistently just tears them all down because he knows that walls that were built to defend also limit and imprison us. We can't be free within those walls. We build legal walls and then we create the loopholes to be able to do what we want anyway. And Jesus exposes our intent. doesn't let us get away with that. Jesus is not here to make us safe. Do you get that? Jesus isn't here to make us safe. He's here to make us free. And that's a completely different proposition. Did you know freedom and security are inversely proportional? As one goes up, the other goes down. You always get one at the expense of the other. If we want freedom, we're going to have to trade security. If we want security, we're going to have to give up freedom. That's just the way it works. They are inversely proportional. Jesus is taking away our security of the law so that we can be free. That's his whole purpose. And in doing that, he speaks of the danger, right? He tells us he didn't come to bring us peace, 
that word meaning calm or tranquility, but the sword, the division that is naturally going to be created as we start to walk down a path that others don't understand. He talks about gouging out eyes. He talks about picking up your cross daily. He talks about hating your father and mother and your family and even your own life. He talks about letting the dead bury the dead instead of holding to the normal customs that make us feel more safe and secure. And anything that we cling to, he's asking us to sell, let go, to cling not, to crucify, to hang it up on the cross. Who talks this way? Only someone who's left at the very safe places for what is beyond the pale, what is outside the perimeter of the village the places that we know that are well lit, that feel safe. Someone who's gone beyond that can start to talk this way. Someone who's become no longer afraid of ultimate reality, who knows ultimately that all is well and all manner of things shall be well. That clinging to security, this is key, that clinging to security only prolongs the fear and anxiety of insecurity. The longer we cling to that thing to make us secure, the longer we stay fearful of the insecurity that we fear. To be fully free is to be fully at risk, exposed. Like the pioneers who traveled across our country in the 19th century, like the explorers who found these continents in the first place or the ones that go out into space. When you're a thousand miles into the interior of the country in a covered wagon, who do you call when the wagon breaks down? Who do you call when you're under attack? When you're out in the middle of an ocean that you haven't seen land in for months, who do you call when you spring a leak? There's no 911. But who is more free than those people doing something for the first time, making their own tracks for the first time? But who is more vulnerable than those people at the same time? To be fully free is to face our human vulnerability head on, to accept it, to make friends with it. Because only in vulnerability can we really be connected with each other. And only in connection are we ever going to be in kingdom. And only in kingdom are we ever really free. This is what something as simple as an oath can teach us if we understand what Jesus is really saying. He wants us to be that free. Let's pray. Father, we think we want to be that free, but we're not really sure because it's scary. We say we want freedom. We say we want to follow you. We say we want everything that you have for us, and yet we hold back and we cling to the things that keep us anchored in place, to our fears and our insecurities. Help us to refine our sense of desire Help our desire for something more, for what you are really offering to finally overcome the fear that holds us in place so that we can make the first steps, the first choices that will actually take us 
where we say we want to go, to let go of these things that seem so important, so essential, to at least be willing to let them go and see what comes back later. You've given us the path, Lord. You've shown us the way. Help us in our prayer to find a deeper connection with you that will give us the sense that we can survive all of this and thrive. That will be our way, Father. And even when we feel like we're a million miles away from where we're supposed to be and we don't know if we're pleasing you, that our desire to please you in and of itself is pleasing enough to be right in the center of your will. And we can take the next step with confidence. Thank you, Father, for everything that you constantly do every moment for us. Never let us forget that we can only love it all because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.